You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, welcome back to Labor Relations Radio. You know, one of the advantages to being editor of LaborUnionNews.com is that I get to see a lot of articles. And in fact, we've published close to 10,000 articles since we launched back in January. Well, in so doing, one of the disadvantages to that is there are so many articles and so many topics that are comment worthy that there's just really not enough time in the day. However, every once in a while, there's an article or a topic that pops up that requires a little bit more investigation. And one of those articles was last week in the Washington Examiner, and it was entitled Ninth Circuit Forgery Decisions Allow Unions to Rule by Deceit and Undermine Workers' Rights. So that kind of piqued my interest. So I opened up the article and was kind of flabbergasted by this decision out of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, wherein some public sector workers had allegedly had their signatures forged in order for a union to collect their union dues. So I wanted to reach out to the foundation that brought the suits to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and that's the Freedom Foundation. And yesterday I was fortunate uh, fortunate enough to have Sidney Phillips and Rebecca Millard, both Freedom Foundation attorneys, join me and to discuss these cases. Fascinating conversation. Here's Sidney Phillips and Rebecca Millard. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Sidney... And Rebecca, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. How are you today? You're on the West Coast, right? Yes, we both are, Peter. It's so nice to be here. Um, we actually are, uh, I'm in Washington, but Rebecca is actually in Oregon. So we're, we're hitting you from, from two states on the West Coast. Oh, cool. So you're both with the Freedom Foundation. Um, can you explain what the Freedom Foundation is? Yeah, absolutely. So the Freedom Foundation is a... 501c3 nonprofit organization that is focused on um, allowing public sector employees to be educated on their constitutional rights um, with regard to labor unions and specifically their rights to refrain from uh, union membership or paying union dues. And so we assist them through um, the education portion, the opt-out portion, and then um, Rebecca and I are actually attorneys with the foundation, and so we assist them by providing pro bono legal assistance for any public sector employee. How did both of you get into this field? It's it's a bit of a niche or niche, if you will. <laughs> how did how did you get into it, Rebecca? Uh, sure, yeah, I, I um was always just very fascinated by First Amendment litigation and any kind of free speech cases. And the Janus decision in 2018 was just such a watershed and such an interesting application of the First Amendment, sort of different than what you might get with like a, uh, you know, student on a sidewalk kind of a case. You know, we generally think of uh, being on, you know, being in the public forum with First Amendment cases. And that was kind of my, uh, my initial just joy after law school doing those kinds of cases. And then um, 
found out about the Freedom Foundation, realized they were actually doing work along the lines of the Janus decision and just really got excited and uh, decided to join the uh, the team. Do you have a background in like First Amendment issues? I do, yes. Out of law school, I interned with uh, a group that did a lot of First Amendment cases uh, and then um, and ended up going on staff with them as well. So my first 10 years of practice, I was doing pretty much First Amendment litigation in the context of uh, public, you know, public sidewalks and streets and things like that. Oh, cool. Sydney, how'd you get into this? Um, by complete fluke, I'll be honest, Peter. <laughs> um, I, uh, the constitutional law was actually the one class that I came closest to failing in law school. Um, but it goes to show that you can, uh, develop skills after law school. Um, I, I was actually invited by our vice president to interview with the freedom foundation they had been sent my resume and so i got involved that way um and i've i've been there ever since i i also got involved just after the janice decision in 2018 so it was like they threw me just in the water right immediately and they were like we hope you can swim because if not i I guess you will sink and so right Right. i was in so um just as a reminder can you can you share with the listeners what the janice decision is it's public sector only right supreme court case 2018 2018 yeah Yeah. june 27 2018 um basically the u.s supreme court says that uh, this individual, Mark Janice, who was a public employee in Illinois, that <clears throat> he had never joined uh, the union, he had never wanted to be a member, he had never become a member, but he was required to pay these agency fees, which were a percentage of a full due. And the court said, well, because the the sort of intrinsic nature of what the union does is political, that it actually infringes upon an individual's First Amendment rights to be a public sector employee and be required to pay this money to the union. Um, there had been some previous cases, Abood specifically, which um, the court overturned during Janus, and and sort of in this process, they discussed the fact that that having um, the right to refrain from union membership and to refrain from paying union dues was intrinsic within the First Amendment rights of public sector employees and that the union, they could not be forced to be a union member or to pay union dues. So can I ask a clarifying question? In the private sector, which I'm more familiar with, um, there's a concept even in non-right-to-work states, or especially in non-right-to-work states, to refrain from being a union member, however, you can still be required to be an agency fee payer, right? And so this removes even that agency fee payer status in non-right-to-work states, right? Correct. Yeah. So this is sort of the fundamental difference between a private sector employee and a public sector employee. Private sector employees have religious rights. They have Beck objector rights is kind of what you're talking about here. And so these individuals are ones who say, you know, I don't agree with what the union's doing, um, but I'm still required to pay because they're still representing me at work. And what the Janus decision says is, Well, because these individuals work for the government, right, they're either state employees or local municipality employees, those employees, they have rights that are that are different than at in a private sector where you're working for a company like Amazon, like Starbucks, right? Instead, you're working for a government agency, which is 
working in tandem with a union and therefore is infringing upon your rights by saying that you have to be a union member. Interesting. Okay. So um, the Janice decision was not why I wanted to talk to you, obviously, but I thank you for clarifying that. Um, why I reached out to you is every now and then I see these articles because we we post a ton of articles at Labor Union News. And I saw one about a week ago on the Ninth Circuit basically approving forgery, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, right? Appro Sorry. Approving forgery that a union was doing, or you said there's multiple cases before I hit the re record button. So I, I was unaware there was actually four cases, but are they all the same decision? Great, great question. Um, so the, the article you were referencing was talking about two that we just got um, decisions from the Ninth Circuit. So that was the, the highlight. There was those two cases that came down on the same day. There's a, a third case as well that came down the same day out of the state of Washington. But here in Oregon, we actually have five cases currently being litigated in which there's allegations of forgery against the same union. So there are multiple cases in the pipeline, so to speak. Um, but the, the two cases that the Ninth Circuit actually ruled upon um, are the Wright case and the Zelensky case, and those just came down um, end of September. So what are the backgrounds? These are state employees? Correct, yes. Actually, in both Wright and Zelensky, the plaintiffs uh, work for the Oregon Health Authority, um, and so, yeah, employed by a state agency out here in Oregon. And so allegedly their signatures on membership applications or union dues deduction or something was forged? Yes, that's exactly the allegation. So uh, for Mr. Zelinsky, I'll just start with his case because it's it's uh, they're both very similar. So I'll, I'll start with his. But. Um, he thought, as many public sector union employees, well, many public employees think and have thought that uh, union membership is mandatory. That's what they're told. Um, the, the pay, the, the dues or the fees, they come straight out of your paycheck. Um, most public sector employees don't really realize there's a choice here. Uh, so in 2019, Mr. Zelinsky uh, he had some question he wanted to ask his union rep and he went and, you know, made that phone call, was asking the question, but he just got very, uh, he was not happy with the, the answer to the question. The union rep was not, you know, polite. It was just a bad experience. So he said, okay, I just want to leave the union. I don't, I don't even want to be part of this anymore. And the union rep said, well, you can leave the union, but you're going to have to keep paying for another, I believe it was six months at the time, because you signed this membership agreement that says, I, I agree, I'm going to continue to pay whether or not I stay a member. And that's a fairly common practice uh, to have those membership cards. But Mr. Zelinsky had never signed one, and he knew that. He knew that he'd never signed anything. He said, okay, well, send me a copy of this, this membership agreement I signed. And they did, and they sent him a card dated 2017. Um, and the signature on the card is a series of interconnected ends. It, mm. it, it, there's no way it's anyone's signature, first of all. It's certainly not Mr. Zelensky's signature. He has a very distinctive name and a very distinctive signature. And uh, so he was obviously outraged uh, when they sent him this, saying, we're going to use this to force you to continue to pay this money. Uh, so he got in touch with us and said, hey, I think this has been a forgery. I, I don't know what to do. You know, what can we do? 
we decided to take a cautious approach and we sent a demand letter to the union and said, hey, what's going on with this? This doesn't appear to be, you know, his signature, what, what's happening? Their response to us was to send another forged do uh, document back. And this one was dated 2013. And uh, in it, it also had a forged signature on it. Mr. Zelensky looked at the card and he said, that is also not my signature. I, I never filled this out. It didn't happen. And so at that point, with no explanation from the union as to how these two cards came into existence, we decided to go to court and actually try to enforce Mr. Zelensky's First Amendment right to stop paying this money to the union. Um, this would have been after Janice had been decided, it was. right? It was 2019. So it was like a year after Janice, so a year and a half after Janice. We filed the case in 2020, but 2019 was when all of his information kind of came to light. Interesting. And they they didn't back down even after Janice? No, I mean, like like I said, they the, the cards were dated pre-Janice, um, you know, 2017, 2013. Uh, but we have no way of knowing, you know, if they were made pre-Janice or if they were made post-Janice. Like, we, we, you know, Mr. Zelensky has no way of knowing when these forgeries occurred. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, in spite of the Janus case, in spite of the rights that Mr. Zelensky has under the First Amendment, the union has taken the position that there is not a First Amendment issue here. There, maybe there was a forgery, but it has nothing to do with the First Amendment. They're basically claiming it's um, he's bound by contract, being that card? Yes. They're saying he's bound by contract, and because it's just a private agreement between the union and him, although... As we pointed out repeatedly, there is no private agreement because it was forged. But right. because of this, their allegation is, well, there was no state action. There was no involvement of the government in this, this activity. So therefore, the First Amendment doesn't apply. And that's ultimately what the Ninth Circuit bought and said, yeah, that's, that's the way we're going to rule here. Yeah, let's let's hold off on getting to that yes. convoluted process because <laughs> I'm still confused on that. Um, it is very confusing. <laughs> and, the, and the second case, the same? Similar yes, so the of... second case, very similar. Um, she also worked for the Oregon uh, Health Authority. She actually retired before we filed her case, and that was one of the technical issues the court ruled upon and as far as standing goes. But like I said, we don't need to get into that. Uh, but, yeah, same thing. She'd never signed up for the union. Miss Wright uh, didn't ever want to be a union member. Uh, went to say, you know, why are you taking my money from the union? And they said, well, you've signed this, this membership card and sent her a card that she allegedly had signed. She's like, that's not my signature. I never signed that. Was it the interconnecting um, ends as well? It wasn't quite that bad, no. Okay. But, but you know, there's different levels of <laughs> of, uh, of forgery, I would say. But, yeah, some of the, and in some of our other cases, we've had actually electronic forgeries where it's it's not even a, a signature. They're just saying that you accessed our membership on this date and this time, and that's that's the agreement that we're enforcing. And they you know don't even have a signature at all. So that's that's even further down the road. But yeah, they come in all shapes and sizes. And then Sydney, you had one as well or two? Yeah, I have I have another one. So um, my case is Miss um, Ochoa, and Miss Ochoa is actually in a kind of a slightly different category than Rebecca's clients. Miss um, Ochoa is a home health care provider, so we call them individual providers in the state of Washington. So that she takes care of a, a sick son um, who has cancer, and that's what she does. And so um, 
he actually fits into a group um, from a, uh, another U.S. Supreme Court case called Harris versus Quinn from a, a little bit earlier than Janice from 2014. But it says the same thing. Um, it says that quasi-public employees um, are not required to be union members and are not required to pay dues. And so same thing, Ms. Ochoa had never wanted to be a union member, had never participated, had actively been opposed to a lot of the things that um, the union supports and and purports to, you know, give money to, et cetera. And so she had tried to stay away from the union as much as possible, which is pretty easy when you work at home and your, like, employer is your own kid. Um, but she... So she, she did that, um, and in 2016, um, somebody showed up at her door um, working for the union and tried to get her to sign a membership card on an iPad. And she specifically recalls the person walking away and, like, writing on it, and she yelled out, don't sign my name to that. Um, and she comes to find out a couple months later when they start taking money from her that that's exactly what they've done. So she reaches out to the Freedom Foundation and we get involved. Um, and it gets to the point where the actual uh, union treasurer admits in writing, yeah, this doesn't look like your signature, Ms. Ochoa, um, which is, you know, always great to hear. But then so we get it to stop. Everything seems great. You know, she gets her money back. She's fine. Well, after the Janus decision comes out, there's a purported clerical error that comes from the state where they start taking her money again um, against her will without a card, without any kind of um, authorization from her. And um, they continue to do so until we get involved and file a lawsuit and um, demonstrate that, that really it's the system that allows for this, right? The system where the government just relies upon the union um, that that really harms individuals like Ms. Ochoa and then similarly like Mr. Zelensky and Ms. Wright that Rebecca has, right? Where, you know, you could have instances where forgeries are allowed. You have instances where people's money is just being taken due to, you know, system errors or clerical errors. And, um, and so that's what Ms. Ochoa's case is now about, because she actually settled with the union um, prior to getting to the Ninth Circuit. So let me ask you a question, because your case is different than the Zelensky and Wright cases in that she did not work, quote unquote, work for the state. Her, she's, a, she's basically providing for her son, but collecting state monies for her son. And right. that's how they, I seem to recall they did this in, I want to say Minnesota, maybe Wisconsin, New Jersey, I think attempted it where they had people who got state aid for caring for the disabled relatives or family members. Um, they created separate corporations. I don't know if that's the case where in this instant case, but they said they created separate corporations under the state where the that's how the union got them to be union members. Is that something that happened out there? Well, we're starting to see that actually now. Um, so for a long time, the the Governor Inslee or, you know, whoever was governor at the time was the, the public employer for purposes of this. And they farmed out payroll um, to an organization, a, a corporation that would do all the payroll, would be the person to contact you for your hours, all those kinds of things that you would tell that you took sick time, vacation, et cetera. Um, but 
they've now really transitioned to a corporation so that they can make them private employees and switch them back into the system that we were just previously talking about, um, where they don't have the right to refrain from union membership, that they still have to pay some form of agency fees, um, uh, and they're sort of like back oh. into the system. It's it is a it is a very tricky dance that they are playing right now. Yeah, that's an interesting twist. So the government entity is setting up a private entity to put them under the NLRA as opposed to whatever the public sector labor law is. Yes, exactly. Wow. Huh. So I guess <laughs> I guess that's why the. Washington, Oregon, and California kind of get lumped into the same system yeah. or same, <laughs> same ridicule. If Pretty it much. works in Washington, we'll see it here in Oregon soon. It's it's inevitable. But yeah, it is an interesting sub, you know, like the Supreme Court called right? Yes, quasi-public employees. Like they, they get government money, but they're not directly employed by, you know, like the health authority as, as, as Mr. Zelensky was. That could... That could lead to all kinds of things. For example, if we're providing state aid to homeless, are they now employees? Um, they could be if you wanted to unionize huh. them. I bet the unions could figure out a way to make them state employees, Peter. Yeah. <laughs> <You'd> be surprised. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm putting my dark evil hat on for a second. Um, so... Okay, so similar cases, although Ms. Ochoa's was resolved prior to getting to the Ninth Circuit? Uh, partially resolved. So she resolved it with the union, but not with the state. Um, she, her, her beef with the state is that they have a system that allows for this kind of harm to happen to public employees like herself, right? It allows for forgery. It allows for mistakes. Um, because it never contacts the public employee themselves and says, hey, do you actually want to pay union dues? Is it, do you want to be a union member? That conversation never happens with the public employee. And so that is the conversation that's happening before the Ninth Circuit, and now we're going to the U.S. Supreme Court on. It's kind of like taxation without representation going to uh, special interest, yeah. for lack of a better term. And I would just clarify, I think we think the reason that the Ninth Circuit heard all these cases together was that they do all raise that same issue of the system being the problem. And like for Mr. Zelensky, he still has the outstanding issue of the forgery. But it is the system that allowed this to occur. Like if he had known that they'd forged his signature in the beginning, he would have stopped it back in, you know, whenever they actually allegedly did the forgery, uh, but he didn't because the state is just taking that money straight out of his paycheck, just as they did for Ms. Ochoa. They were just taking that money straight out, and she didn't even know it was occurring until after the fact. How Did it not say union dues on the paycheck stub or the payroll stub? Or did it, it, it say usually designate something. It doesn't necessarily always clarify that it's a union due. Hmm. Yeah, and not everyone checks their pay stubs. So. That's true, <laughs> um, except for that net amount. Yes. So let me ask you, um, so these came up through the different state courts, right? Oregon and then, was it, is Mr. Choa Oregon? federal district court. They, but, yeah. yeah, federal oh, okay. courts within each state. Okay. So then they land at the Ninth Circuit, um, and they basically approved it. How, how did that go about? 
It, so I mean, yeah, let's just start. Yeah. So um, where's the logic? <laughs> this is so Misachoa is, is is very interesting um, because so as I mentioned, the union is no longer uh, really a, a true party to this lawsuit anymore because they settled with Misachoa. So really, the the two big issues are the union. Uh, pardon me. Pardon me not the union, the employer, which is the state of Washington. And then the other is this um, organization that I mentioned. It's a corporation. Um, it's got two aspects to it, the um, public partnership and public consulting group. And those are the two, we call them IP1. Basically, they're just our payroll processor. Um, but they do significantly more than just payroll. And so essentially, the Ninth Circuit says, yeah, we're we're gonna agree with Mr. Choa that there there is something happening here. IP one, you are definitely working in connection with the union. So, uh, pardon me, with the union and with the state, and so together, that makes you a a, a state actor for purposes of of this type of lawsuit. Right. And so that means that we can continue the lawsuit against them. That's great. So, you know, we have this wonderful victory for um, for Mr. Choa. But the part where they disagree is they say, well, the the employer, the state really didn't intend to do this. Like this was just a mistake and they're just kind of following the the legislation and they're just following the state law and and that's okay that a, a mistake is okay and that you you know we're not we're gonna not gonna let you pursue this for just you know negligence on part of the state that's that's fine um the tough part with this obviously is the fact that uh the case that they really rely upon which is this u.s supreme court case from several years ago um it doesn't say that. It it really is focused on um, the fact that you can you can have uh, there's a difference between something that was truly negligent. Um, in that case, you know, a, a corrections officer had officer had left a pillow on stairs, and an inmate had fallen and hurt himself. Right, like he didn't intentionally put a pillow on the stairs to cause the inmate to fall and hurt himself, right? We can, we can all kind of recognize that. But the difference here is that the state implemented this system and continues to run a system that they know allows for forgeries, allows for clerical errors, and does not allow for public employees to have a say in whether they are considered to be union members and to have dues deducted from them. And that is in violation of their First Amendment rights. It is um, it is a continuing process and it's one without any procedural safeguards, which under the 14th Amendment, the, the state is required to provide. Um, and so that's the issue that we have with the Ninth Circuit's opinion in Mr. Choa's case. It's very technical, so I'm very so, sorry for. <laughs> no, that's okay. Let me ask you a question, and I should have asked this at the beginning. Are these, well, first, are you allowed to name the unions? And B, is it the same union? Yes, 
Definitely can name the unions. Um, in Mr. Cho's case, it's uh, Service Employees International Union Local 775. Um, okay. They represent all public sector employees um, for individual providers in the state of Washington. And okay. it, it, in Oregon, both cases are against Service Employees International Union 503, which is the Oregon right. local that represents right. all the public sector. Yeah, I'm familiar um, with so that. So they're, you, they're you could say local. they're both Service Employee International Union, but they are different local branches. Right. Um, so in Ms. Ochoa's case, they actually used the case involving the prison guard as their defense? That's no, that's what the, the court said. The court said, this is what we're going to rely on. This gives us yeah. a great example of how some people just make mistakes and <laughs> that's okay. Um, which is, which is really not at all what's happening in the case of Ms. Ochoa. And we continue to see in other forgery cases, we actually have had four forgeries in Washington. Uh, I know Rebecca just mentioned that they have five in Oregon. We have several in California. We found others in other states across the country. And so it's, it's continuing to demonstrate that this isn't just a mistake. This isn't just mere negligence, that there is some form of intentionality when you know that bad acts can happen and you continue to allow them to happen. And that's exactly what um, the state is doing here. And that's what we're, we're fighting to have them stop. And then were the Zelensky and Wright cases, I know they were heard at the same time, but was it all the same decision coming out of the ninth circuit? Another, they're actually three separate decisions. We did, we did okay. argue them back to back. Well, not back to back, but very close. All in the same morning, we had a, a marathon session arguing cases before the Ninth Circuit, and Sydney and I had the longest day in the history of lawyers arguing cases at the Ninth Circuit. But, uh, but so yeah, I'll argue together, and then they did issue the the decisions on the same day, but separately. And they're all the same basic legal principles, or. Related, yeah, they all yeah. have some yeah. related issues. I will say the Zelensky decision was was not actually a published decision. It's what's called a memorandum decision. The court basically said, we're just applying the same reasoning we applied in the right case. Hmm. All the same reasons apply. We're not going to analyze it any further than that. See, you know, see right case. Um, so it's a little bit confusing because the facts aren't identical in the cases, but the court sort of treated them as if they were. So not to get into politics too much, I had heard, because the Ninth Circuit has always been labeled to be extremely far out there, whether you want to call <laughs> yes. it far left or whatever. And I had heard more recently that it had come back towards the middle a little bit. And this does not seem like it's in the middle. This seems very interesting. <laughs> so, headed towards the Supreme Court, maybe. We certainly hope so. We're, we'll, we'll be filing petitions for review for each case. Yes. And I, I guess what's confusing is, um, I mean, you're almost codifying through a decision like illegal acts. Forgery, I think, is illegal, isn't it? Yes, yes. And ironically, that was part of the court's reasoning. They said, well, this isn't really the state's policy. state's not in favor of forgery. It's illegal. So therefore, the state's not responsible for this activity. But it's a matter of circular logic, because it's like the state put, put in place the system that 
won't even look at whether there's a forgery. And yet, because forgery is illegal, the state's not responsible, therefore. It's a lot of what I would call circular reasoning. Yeah. Um, so now you're you're on your way to file a, I guess, res, uh, certiori for the Supreme Court? Would Correct, that happen? Yeah. So would that happen soon or like within this year or next year? Yeah, so we our, our deadline's actually in December. Um, so we're currently working on working on those uh, petitions and getting them all squared away. Um, and then we are hopeful that the court will be able to look at that um, next year and hopefully actually take those cases. Um, it's always a long shot with the U.S. Supreme Court because they take so few cases. But we think that um, the fact that the Ninth Circuit is continuing to, um, I'll say politely, kind of miss the point here. Um, they're they're missing how the how the way that the unions are running and using this system that the state is providing really harms the rights of public employees. And so we think that it's perfectly appropriate and it's the right move for the. U.S. Supreme Court to take this, uh, any of these cases, all of these cases would be wonderful, but any of these cases um, so that we have an opportunity to show that that procedural safeguards are necessary and the fact that we don't have any is a travesty to the First Amendment rights of public employees across the country. Well, especially just after ruling on Janice. It seems to circumvent that whole ruling. If I may, I think you hit the nail on the head right there because... If you read the Janus decision, there's these remarkable words in the close of the decision where they say that a state cannot presume or assume that an employee consents to pay this money to the union. You can't just say, oh, everybody wants to be a union member, therefore we're going to take everybody's money. You can't presume that. And yet the Ninth Circuit upholds a system that does that very thing. It presumes these people have actually consented to be union members and to pay these dues. They have not. And yet the Ninth Circuit said specifically that there's no duty on the part of the state to get in there and actually ensure that there's consent. So basically they turned Janice on its head. I mean, I don't see how you could really look at it any other way. Sure, there's technical things and you know, this happened here and this happened here and there was wrongdoing. But ultimately, bottom line, these public employees are not protected under the First Amendment. That's the outcome that we're seeing here. So let me ask this. I know the Freedom Foundation is primarily on the West Coast, right? That's your kind of base of operations. Are there any cases that you're hearing about out in, say, the Midwest or across the country? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, there's another forgery case out of Minnesota, not one that we handled, but uh, one that was was and is being considered at this present time. Is it going uh, to the whatever circuit court that is? <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, and, and the Freedom Foundation is, is, so we're national now, but we get involved with a lot of other organizations doing similar work. Um, and right. we work to help because we, we were some of the first to actually see forgeries and deal with them on the West coast. And so, um, now we've been involved in ones in New York and Pennsylvania and several other States, um, on the East coast that have started to experience the same kind of thing, um, that have come to light 
largely because of the press related to our cases, because people are like, wait, maybe that happened to me. And so they go and they're like, Hey union, can I get a copy of my membership card? And they look at it and it's, you know, a series of ends or, or some other crazy forgery. And they're like, there's no way that that's my signature. Or, just, or nothing. I mean, sometimes the unions will just admit we never had an authorization for you. We should not have been taking your money. Well, the reason I'm asking that question, if you're hearing about it from other parts of the country, is the Ninth Circuit covers, I don't know, eight or nine states, right, out on the primarily west. Um, but you've got other circuits. And my recollection, I'm not an attorney. I just, you know, sleep at a Holiday Inn. Um, but if you have if you have different circuits ruling on separately on the same type of case, doesn't that get you up to the Supreme Court faster? Yes, it does. So yeah, that's oh, it's that's been a thirty something split. years since I took yeah. law. But. <laughs> You're right, Peter. That's that's called a circuit split, um, and that is a way to get to the Supreme Court. the The tough part is um, a lot of these cases end up settling. Um, a lot of no. clients. This is this is a really difficult process for them um, because it it takes a lot of a lot of years, right? You usually have unions. Um, you know, digging into people's backgrounds, saying rude things about them, you know, sure. making, su- making suggestions about the type of people that they are. And that becomes really tiring um, for a lot of people. And so um, we see a lot of these cases just settle. Um, and we're hopeful that, you know, if if the court doesn't take these cases, um, that there will be another opportunity to have a circuit split where we can show, you know, look, the Ninth Circuit said these things in Ochoa, Zelensky, right? But now, you know, the Fourth Circuit, the Third Circuit, some other circuit says specifically, you know, the opposite. And you should clarify this for us, Supreme Court. I'm kind of just thinking out loud here, but... any type of criminal types of prosecution. So if I'm a SEIU member or not a member, but a SEIU represented in the state of Texas, for example, and I discovered that my signature was forged, is that not criminality? Oh, it is. Peter, you, you find me a, a district attorney or a Commonwealth attorney, prosecuting attorney who's willing to go after the union, I will find them a plaintiff who has had that problem because um, we have brought several of them to um, localities in Washington state. And the answer we get is this is just not worth our time. We're not going to do it. Well, I said Texas for a reason. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're not going to get that in Washington or Oregon or California or even Minnesota. And the other part, yeah, the other thing that's difficult is, you know, prosecutors are so busy. And what we're talking about here is not a ton of money. It's a huge principle because this is money that's being used for politics. But it's not a lot of money, right? You're not talking about millions of dollars in fraud, right? You're talking about hundreds or thousands of dollars of fraud. So I think it's, you know, not only do the unions have enormous political sway on the West Coast, but also you're just talking about a case that's probably not going to be a huge priority for most prosecutors. So it's it's difficult. It's difficult to find, you know. However, if you were to take, you know, 100 members in California and 100 members in Oregon and, you know, Washington and Texas here and there multiplied by the amount of dues over, say, a year, and not to mention you're crossing state lines in what could be a criminal enterprise, 
I, like there's some ramifications, I would think. We agree. Yeah, it's it's almost like you have been involved with Freedom Foundation cases before or you have some idea because both Rebecca and I have cases that involve RICO claims against the union for doing exactly that, for sending money across state lines that they have obtained um, based on fraud through forgery. And, yeah, it's wire fraud, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and yeah. so so both Rebecca has one in Oregon and I have one in Washington, um, and those are still ongoing cases as well. So where the union would defend itself is saying that local 503 versus what is it, 775? Yeah, mm -hmm. they're separate entities legally and incorporated separately, and therefore they're not the same organization. And we had this issue back when the SEIU general counsel became a board member and at the National Labor Relations Board and said he would recuse himself, never did, and then claimed working for the international is separate from the locals, and locals are their own unique entities. Whereas nobody, I think, brought the case forward saying that the SEIU constitution, just like all other constitutions, put the Union International on top of everything. And I don't think that ever got brought up, but... Yeah, that's that's exactly the, the same situation that we're seeing in Washington and in Oregon, where we continue to see the same pattern coming from the same local unions, but they continue to send this money that they take by forgery, by fraud, and send it to the international, you know, in Washington, D.C., who then spends it on super PACs, on, you know, huge candidates, candidates right. for presidents, et cetera, and... Um, that clearly is a violation of RICO. Yeah, that's going to be fascinating. Fun to watch. Yeah. When you go there, yeah, I have to have you back on. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got lots of stories already. Just in the, the opening phases of these fights have been interesting. And I just want to mention what Sydney was saying about it being difficult for plaintiffs to be in this position. It is very, very difficult. We've had so many plaintiffs just just struggle to even maintain their lawsuits, even though it doesn't cost them, you know, out of pocket, you know, we're, we're providing services pro bono, but the, the pressure that's put on them is insane. And in our RICO case here in Oregon, first thing that the union did once we filed that case was turn around and sue the client for suing them. So these things are the, the kind of pressure these unions can bring to bear is, is just outrageous. Which that to me sounds like it'd be a violation of the Labor Management Reporting and Disclosure Act or the and the union members' bill of rights in there, right? It's a it's a great great idea. I think public sector unions have something a little slightly a little different, but yes. Interesting. Yes. <clears throat> um. So this fight is ongoing. You're going to be obviously up to your eyeballs and briefings and all that stuff? Yes, uh, that's that's kind of our main focus right now, in addition to our other cases, but uh, one of our main focuses is, is getting these cert petitions ready to be filed before the U.S. Supreme Court. So do you have any kind of timeline other than December's the deadline and they may or may not take it, right? Yeah, that's that's pretty much our timeline. So okay. yeah, we we plan on filing beginning of December, and then we're hoping that they will that they'll um, add it to their docket shortly thereafter. 
Well, that's cool. So what other fun types, types of cases do you have at the Freedom Foundation? <laughs> Mostly that stuff or? A lot of our cases are definitely forgery. Um, I have also sort of carved out a, a, an even more specific niche um, where I do public records law. Um, and that it sounds like it, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but um, as I mentioned sort of at the beginning, the Freedom Foundation um, contacts public employees um, as our um, one of our main forms of education is through in email contact, um, other touch points of contact at their work, et cetera. Um, and uh, the other thing is we sort of keep, we keep tabs on what the, what the unions are saying to public employees, um, how they're handling different issues, whether they're actually representing public employees the way that they should. Um, and so a lot of that requires disclosure under public records law. Um, and the amount of involvement that you get to see with unions um, attempting to block the Freedom Foundation from accessing any of these records, um, emails, other public records that are very obviously public records, um, the lengths that they'll go to um, are are quite interesting. Uh, I've even had one lawsuit where the Freedom Foundation is the defendant amongst 400 other defendants. Um, so uh, the union likes to keep us very busy to say the least. Uh, they're suing you. In yes. other words, for, okay. <laughs> By uh, what right? Uh, th this one's interesting. They say that, uh, by us asking for this information that we actually pose a risk for survivors of domestic abuse, sexual assault, harassment, et cetera, um, for their abusers to find them, um, and harm them. But specifically, hmm. it's for the Freedom Foundation's request, which we we don't provide our requests anywhere else. We keep them locked tight. We use them ourselves, um, and so it's a it's a really really interesting case to say the least. Interesting, yeah, indeed. Well, Sydney you, Sydney should should tell the story of her her first case out of law school was arguing at the Washington Supreme Court on a public records case. Um, so that was that was her legacy. That's true. Um, that was you did my mention first... you jumped into the fire, right? She I did. Won. Yeah, and they... she won, by the way. <laughs> I, yeah, I won nine nothing on a public records case before the Washington State Supreme Court as my my first case ever. Um, so that was very exciting. Also, uh, probably the most nerve wracking thing that you could have a a young, very green new lawyer do, but. Uh, I survived and the Freedom Foundation um, was able to win. So that was great. That's awesome. You, you did your alma mater proud. Yes, very much. You <laughs> <laughs> <He> did. <laughs> well, on that note, um, I really appreciate you both coming on and letting me bounce ideas off of you and answering questions for me because this, I saw the article last week. I was like, what? They're approving forgery. It's crazy. It is, it is crazy, Peter. I mean, these are the stories that if I just heard them, you know, if I just read that somewhere, I'd be like, yeah, right. But I actually know these people, you know, yeah. I've actually talked to them and they have the proof and it's 
It is. It's completely crazy. Well, and I, I assume, and this may be a dangerous assumption, but if it's happening in Washington, it's happening in Oregon, it's probably happening in Minnesota. And the interesting thing is that little agency or employer that they set up to allow all of this in the various states. Because I remember it happened in New York, and then it was Minnesota and New Jersey and a few others. And I can't recall the case. I think it got tossed back. It might have been in Minnesota or Wisconsin. You know, they, they shut it down because of the lawsuits. But it's, you know, it's likely happening elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. in any case. Yep. I would, I would say there's very good likelihood. And if you're a public employee, look at your pay stub. Make sure that the money coming out of your paycheck is actually something you want coming out of your paycheck. Right. <laughs> so I'm going to include some of the links and obviously the article. Um, if, and if you can think of others to send, you know, shoot them my way. And I'll, before we post this episode, I'll, I'll put the links under the, into the description. Um, but Tell the folks how they can get hold of you or the Freedom Foundation. Yeah, absolutely. So you can reach out to us um, on freedomfoundation.com. But another way, if you want to get some more education and figure out whether you are eligible to opt out for your union, you can um, go to our sister site, which is optouttoday.com. Um, and that's a great resource that you can send to your friends or family that are public employees um, and make sure that they know their constitutional rights. Right. My recollection of opt out today is that you've got each state um, identified in terms of here's how to do it. Yes. Yeah. And it it will, it will actually like auto populate a letter for you. You just have to fill in your information. It will send it to you. And if, you don't have access to a printer or anything, you can also send it to us and we'll make sure it goes out for you in the mail for free. Very cool. Well, Sydney and Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you thank for you. having us, Peter. And, Pleasure. And please let me know when something new comes up and be glad to have you back on. Perfect. Thank you. We would enjoy that. Thank you so much. Talk soon. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So that was Sydney Phillips and Rebecca Millard from the Freedom Foundation discussing the twisted, torturous logic of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And, you know, there's a quote by Nassim Nicholas Tlaib that says, My biggest problem with modernity may lie in the growing separation of the ethical and the legal. And that kind of sums that whole thing up with the Ninth Circuit. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Or uh, leave us a comment under the audio portion of this episode of Labor Relations Radio. Or give us a call at 1-888-668-6466. That's 1-888-668-6466. Thanks for listening. to Labor Relations Radio.
Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoyed Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.